Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. It's Friday the 16th of October 1959, the end of a week that's seen Sydney rocked by the deaths of not one, but two local entertainment legends. On Wednesday morning, Jack Davey, beloved television and radio host, succumbed to a heart attack in St Vincent's Hospital. At almost the same time, on the other side of the Pacific, in an apartment in Vancouver, Canada, Hollywood legend Errol Flynn's heart also gave out. It's a striking synchronicity, not least because the two men had been friends and reportedly even shared a flat back in the 1930s. Also in the news this Friday the 16th of October, two other mates who are going to be linked in life and in death, Kevin John Simmons and Leslie Allen Newcomb. Just a week ago, they were 20-something criminal nobodies doing short prison sentences in Long Bay Jail. Now, after a daring escape, they're the most wanted men in Australia. The manhunt's so sensational that it even eclipses the deaths of Jack Davey and Errol Flynn. But on this Friday, at least for the new breed of youngster referred to as the teenager, the biggest news isn't old famous fellas dying or even young infamous blokes running for their lives. The biggest news in Sydney is that there's going to be a whole lot of shaking going on. See, tonight at the Sydney Stadium, that hottest of young American idols, Fabian, will be singing up a storm, supported by the cream of the crop of local rock and rollers, including the likes of Cole Joy, Johnny Devlin, and those cool cats, the Deltones. 
thousands of teenagers, along with smatterings of parents, chaperones and other curious adults, are shelling out handfuls of shillings to experience the show live. That's because you just can't see it on the idiot boxes now found in more and more lounge rooms. Like the newspaper ads say, Fabian will definitely not be appearing on TV during his stay in Sydney. Except that Lee Gordon, the rock and roll promoter extraordinaire who's behind this stadium show, does have a cunning plan to maximise the moolah he makes out of this new mode of music. See, Lee Gordon's got an array of 35mm movie cameras capturing all of the action, and in a couple of weeks, he's going to release a feature film comprising footage from tonight and from tomorrow night's show. But Lee Gordon's cinematic scheme is also going to come just a little bit unstuck. That's because he hasn't actually got the rights to put Fabian in a movie, and the American Idol's manager, Bob Marucci, will demand that Fabian be cut from the film. So, as a fallback, the ever-resourceful Lee Gordon stages a special performance by none other than the Wild One, Johnny O'Keefe. And he inserts this into the movie that he calls Lee Gordon's 1959 Rock and Roll Spectacular. It's a grand name, and it's a great movie, but even so, it doesn't play for long in Australian cinemas. Then, it disappears. Believed, lost forever. It'll become a pop culture holy grail, one of the most sought-after films in Australian history. Jump cut to the far-off year of 2020. Melbourne man Mark Yaria is at a garage sale when he finds a film canister. Inside is Lee Gordon's 1959 Rock and Roll Spectacular. This is believed to be the only 35mm footage of live rock and roll from the 1950s that's in existence. Not just in Australia, but throughout the world. I'm Michael Adams and this is a Forgotten Australia Your Stories episode in which I'll be talking to Mark Yaria about his remarkable discovery. But first I thought I'd share a magazine article I wrote a couple of years before I started Forgotten Australia. It was about Lee Gordon. He's a character we'll be looking at in more depth down the track, but for now, this overview, I hope, will give you a bit of an idea of who Lee Gordon was, what he meant to Australia, and where the rock and roll spectacular fits into his life and times. God did not give rock and roll to Australia. But the people of Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane could have been forgiven for thinking that's who it came from on a 1954 day when millions of leaflets advertising Johnny Ray concerts poured from the skies. The American teen idol was coming to our shores courtesy of promoter Lee Gordon, himself a recent transplant to Oz from the US of A. But ticket sales were sluggish because many adolescents newly minted as teenagers, thought the gigs were a scam because American acts simply did not tour down under. Lee Gordon needed something big, something that would convince everyone his show wasn't just real, but unmissable. That's when he had a eureka moment and hired planes to blanket East Coast capitals with TUFA, that is, two-for-one ticket offers. It worked. Johnny Ray played to full houses, 
and Australian pop culture was changed overnight. I thought it was the greatest excitement I'd ever known, says Bob Rogers, veteran radio disc jockey. Even travelling with the Beatles afterwards didn't compare. Australian singer Diana Trask was just a teenager when she saw Johnny Ray. I was screaming my head off, she remembers of the man whose act actually inspired Elvis Presley. He was taking his shirt off and throwing it on the ground. Oh my God, it was unreal. Who had ever seen anything like it? In Australia, the answer was no one. Not until Lee Gordon. Born Lee Lazar Gordon in Detroit, Michigan on the 8th of March 1923, or in other accounts as Lee Gavorshner in Coral Gables, Florida sometime in 1917, he was a short, dark-haired chap who'd already made and lost several fortunes in retail, mail order and entertainment promotions in the US, Canada and Cuba before he arrived in Australia in September 1953. After using marketing stunts to flog refrigerators in Sydney, Lee Gordon poured his cash into bringing American acts to our shores. He started in July 1954 with Ella Fitzgerald, drummer Buddy Rich and clarinet player Artie Shaw, the first of his big show programs. He then followed up with Johnny Ray, who was backed with dancers and comedians. Over the next decade, Lee Gordon would put on dozens of big shows with hundreds of American acts at vast boxing stadiums in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. Some of these shows were hugely successful, others incredible flops, with Gordon making and losing untold millions as he gambled on wild marketing schemes, risky business ventures and a personal life that took him over the edge. A whole new entertainment industry opened up thanks to him, says Bob Rogers, who in the late 1950s struck up a symbiotic relationship with Gordon, promoting his acts on radio while getting interview access to Frank Sinatra, Buddy Holly and all the biggest names in showbiz. Bob Rogers continues, Until then, any overseas artists were fading and they were always of the older genre, but Lee was bringing young performers here while they were still hot in America. Lee Gordon imported American rock records, gave them to radio to play and created a market clamouring for tickets to his January 1957 bill, headlined as it was by red-hot Bill Haley and the Comets. Former Newcastle record store manager Reg Mason was a teenager in the audience, having driven three hours to get to Sydney Stadium. Hearing him recall the roster of other artists he saw at big shows brings home the scope of what Gordon did. Quote, Johnny Ray, Bob Hope, Chubby Checker, Frank Sinatra, Buddy Holly and the Crickets, Fats Domino, Eddie Cochran, Harry Belafonte, Little Richard, Nat King Cole, Louis Armstrong, Sammy Davis Jr. The list just goes on. It was mind-blowing. But Lee Gordon's imported acts were only half the story. His big shows also gave vital exposure to fledgling Australian acts. Cole Joy tells me, he rang to ask, did I dig this fella Cash, John Cash, and did we know his music? That was the phone call that introduced Cole Joy to Lee Gordon. By supporting Johnny Cash, Cole Joy and the Joy Boys found a bigger audience and landed their first number one single. In 1958, Diana Trask, then an 18-year-old jazz singer, was given her big break when Lee Gordon asked her to support Stan Freeberg, and then... Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. She says, 
It was over the moon. Incredible. My dreams come true. Meanwhile, Johnny O'Keefe's career went stratospheric when he and his band The DJs became a regular electrifying support act and then headliner in their own right at big shows. The Wild One would also release his singles on Lee Gordon's Leiden record label. Everyone I spoke to about Lee Gordon remembers him as a soft-spoken gentleman, if a tad eccentric. The man slept in a coffin. They remember him enthusing always about the next act he was going to land. He'd maintain his enthusiasm even as his current tour lost him another fortune. Liberace, Abbott and Costello and actress Betty Hutton were among the duds. But what did rankle Lee Gordon was when his buddy Frank Sinatra backed out of a 1957 tour at the last moment after refusing to get back on the plane in Hawaii en route to Australia. This dummy spit cost Lee Gordon a fortune, though Old Blue Eyes eventually made good by touring for Gordon for free in 1959. Personally, professionally and philosophically, Lee Gordon was so far ahead of his time, he can seem like some sort of time traveller. Dig the following. He defied racial bans to take African-American acts to redneck regional Australia. He wooed sex change performer Cochinelle from France for a three-month engagement. He opened one of Australia's first discos. He gave a start to a female impersonator he called Carlotta, and he lost his final financial bundle when he brought out Lenny Bruce for an ill-fated comedy tour. Lee Gordon's other way-ahead-of-the-curve business gambles included a female roller derby league and Australia's first drive-in burger restaurant on Parramatta Road this a decade before McDonald's came down under. The man was also way ahead of Australian society in his fondness for drugs. An enthusiastic marijuana user in the 1950s, he turned to harder substances as the 1960s ticked over and as his financial failures outweighed his successes. As risky, perhaps, was his financial entanglement with King's Cross colourful identity Abe Saffron. At the end of 1962, broke and having absconded from creditors in Sydney, Gordon turned up on the Gold Coast, where he tried to mount shows in what was literally a mechanic's garage, featuring the Joy Boys without Cold Joy. No prizes for guessing that it was a disaster. Cold Joy tells me what his brother and Joy Boys band member Keith Jacobson witnessed that day. Quote, He had his blonde wig and his sunglasses and his hat, It was his disguise. People were looking for him. Resurfacing in Sydney, Lee Gordon was, in July 1963, arrested for trying to buy pethidine, and he fled to London, where he hoped to relaunch his career. But it wasn't to be, and he was found dead in his hotel room on the 7th of November 1963. Heart attack was the official cause, though Everyone I spoke to believes he died of a drug overdose. With Gordon's criminal connections and debts reportedly as high as half a million dollars, Coljoy points to a darker fate, saying, It's still an OD if somebody else pumps it into you. He had a few enemies that he owed money to. Though Lee Gordon is little known today, his legacy is everywhere. Diana Trask puts it best, Quote, If you look at the Australian audience today, it's one of the most sophisticated in the world and it's because they're used to being entertained by the best in the world. 
He was the first one who did that. When he did it on a big scale, he changed the landscape of entertainment in Australia forever. Mark, thanks for joining us on Forgotten Australia to talk about Lee Gordon's rock and roll spectacular, how you found it and how you're sharing it with Australia. First, mate, I want to say I watched the film with a huge smile on my dial. It really is wonderful. Is that something that you're hearing and seeing a lot from audiences seeing the movie? Yeah, I think um, I think it's uh, something that's so long overdue and the, the sort of generation that are, are seeing it, you know, that went through that, that period of music as teenagers, they're they're really ecstatic to see it. It's just such a, a confirmation of what they experienced, and and it, there really isn't anything like that for, for them to to really grab hold of. And it's a real satisfaction, I think, for them to sort of show the world that you know while they're seeing it, they're confirming what they remembered. That blast from the past being relived and shared. Yeah, it's 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 really important I think that people experience it in a cinema. It's it's almost as though I guess as you're growing older you tend to sort of be indoors more and not want to sort of go out into the world as much as you used to. And of course people's mobility is affected um, as they age. But Getting out into the cinema has been a great way of experiencing what they actually did in very much the same way when they went off to the to the stadium and experienced it together. Um, I think it's quite fitting that that binary is going on. Let's start with Lee Gordon, the man behind the show and the film. He's not really known enough by Australians. What do you admire most about Lee Gordon? I think that he had such an awareness of his faults and I think that he was sort of ahead of his time in a lot of ways but I think that the grounding kind of um, quality about Lee Gordon is that um, he wasn't actually afraid of death he was more afraid of living a boring life he just sort of wanted to make it all of his own creation not be bound by anyone for him he had to reach for the stars and that was it there was no there was no in between and while that is a kind of a fatalistic kind of thing I think that so much of us aspire to to be that way but we never really actually either have the facility or the the courage to do it and I think that while you can look back and say well he died at such a, a young age he uh, lived the life that he wanted to live in such a such a pure way, and I think that's what people uh, really kind of connect with is that sort of ability to be yourself, even if that's not not such a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So he yeah. was he was a pioneer in many respects. I mean, he brought rock and roll to Australia. What was Lee Gordon yeah. trying to do in the rock and roll spectacular, both as a show? And as a film? Well, he's just really regarded as the midwife of popular culture in Australia because he really just spent the money to get the acts. Essentially, it was about his connections and the money he was willing to spend. And Australia really was a backwater prior to his um, arrival in, in 1953. So it was a really important business venture, really, when he, he got a tip-off from uh, an Australian 
car salesman in Canada to to work here uh, and promote his uh, promote bands and get them over from the states. And of course, he'd done a bit overseas in in the US already. So he really was the first. And there's nothing. There's no one in comparison. I think he's the man, really. <laughs> so what was he trying to do with this concert film? I think it was a business venture, but obviously a very unique way of also promoting uh, rock and roll because, of course, it is the first rock and roll feature film from the from the 1950s. It's nothing, well, the first and the only one. Um, it was regarded as the first piece of video to promote music uh, on a kind of like a, a popular, popular music kind of level. Yeah, so there were a lot of things that, he he wanted to do that were essentially always the first. He was a genius, and I think that's the thing with a lot of people is that is they end up in the news for all the wrong reasons. But I think I'm, I'm hoping that this film will show show the side to him that what he's given and, and his genius. Well, I love the fact that the film actually begins with a shot of Lee Gordon sitting behind his desk, wheeling and dealing with his wall of stars there. Then we go on to the actual performances themselves. For people who mm. haven't seen the film, who's on stage and how popular were they in 1959? Oh, look, um, obviously Johnny O'Keefe is the headline. He's the king of rock and roll in Australia, widely regarded. But, you know, then you have some fantastic performances that night. Um, Cold Joy... Johnny Devlin, just his energy is amazing. Um, Johnny Reb, the consummate professional. Uh, Lonnie Lee, he lit up the crowd and he was he was getting right into Elvis at that stage. And it was wonderful. And of course, the, the other bands, the graduates, really appreciate Nancy Icon's appearance because it was the only female in the whole concert. So I think that the graduates' performance was more like um, the the sort of the era previous to rock and roll but it was it was great to see that and and then of course the crescents and warren williams um and the deltones who who pretty much are a founding pop group in australia and of course they've got such a long history and and their their sort of tentacles in uh the rock and roll music world kind of stretch far and wide so i mean it really the film was really just a a, a summation of of the cream um, in Australia at that point. And um, it's, it's just such a wonderful thing that, that that was also made sure of by Gordon. He got sort of everyone that he thought was was at the top of their game. And, and in such a short period of time, between 55 and 60, the, the lineup was, was just fantastic. You've got this lineup of pioneering Australian rock and roll acts. The other mm. star of the, the film, of course, is the audience. You know, five years before Beatlemania, the crowd goes wild. And it's a fabulous thing, I think, that Lee Gordon and his director, Lee Robinson, instructed the cameramen to turn their cameras on the audience as much as they did on the performers. Mm. So we get to see mm. people having the best time of their lives, witnessing the birth of something completely new. Yeah, I, I just think that is so vital. It can't be understated. I think for people to reminisce, they needed to see themselves excited and uh, left of centre and, you know, losing control a bit. I mean, these are all things that in the modern day you expect at a concert, but 
we don't we didn't have any record of people losing a little bit of control, getting excited to the point where they you know had to be told to to move away and things like we're so used to seeing um, music from the fifties uh, in an audience on TV where they're they're very well behaved and it was very starchy and to see to see teenage um, particularly the girls were quite excited to see them just fully embracing their passion was it's just so important for people to see that I think because I personally didn't didn't think uh, because I just because of the dearth of video content we have of the 50s I just personally didn't feel as though they could be as kind of reckless at a rock and roll concert as as latter generations, so it's just Absolutely. wonderful. If you looked at some of these audience shots in isolation, you would think you mm. were looking at mid-60s Beatles footage. No, that's right. And I can't, I can't underline that enough that, you know, to know that your, your grandparents and great-grandparents were naughty and cheeky or whatever you want to call that, you know, they, they were reckless or crazy or passionate or... That is just... That's, that's crucial, I think, to our social fabric to... To have that record so yeah to, i really like a bit to realize it's a continuum yeah. i mean i watched it the same week that mm. you know the ticketing of taylor swift's concerts became a phenomenon just the actual selling of tickets like you say yeah there was you know the the grandparents or the great grandparents of the people clamoring for taylor swift tickets were 65 years ago going wild for you know fabian cold joy johnny o'keefe that's right in a very yeah. similar kind of way yeah, and and you know, you I saw a bit of the the Taylor Swift footage, and I found that more fascinating than Taylor Swift. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, she's she's a great artist, but not my sort of music. But I was definitely really entranced by the the crying of the girls were crying for her, and you know, we almost missed that. We almost missed that. I'm sure if we went back into the fifties and got found more footage of. Of concerts, you would you would have seen girls in tears as well, you know. That's right. I mean, this is the thing. I mm. mean, Lee Gordon put on dozens of these big shows with headline acts from the United States, often and Australia, and you can mm. imagine in, in every single crowd there would have been reactions like the one we see in your film. You had many 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 performers who were quite um, you know they're quite reserved and 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 took it took it quite gentlemanly on stage but um uh you know you little richard was tearing his shirt off and throwing it into the crowd and i'm sure if if little richard was performing in such a sort of a excited and 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 free abandoned kind of way i think it's almost a given that that some of the audience would have been the same so yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny thing. I, I think it's um, it was almost lost, that whole idea. I think we almost left that for the 60s, didn't we? Like the mid-60s was something like, yeah, well, we think of that letting go and being loose was the mid-60s kind of idea. But I think it did actually happen quite a lot earlier than more than people realise. So. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When, where, and for how long was the rock and roll spectacular film shown? So it, it was completed in 59 and, and shown in the same year. Uh, done in Sydney at, at a Sydney stadium um, over what's believed is four shows during October. Its first formation was including the the appearance of Fabian, but he was soon taken out of the film quite quite quickly once Fabian's management were aware of it because Gordon hadn't paid any rights to use Fabian. So. The film is essentially a cut-up version of the original. That version toured Australia, but the, the complete version um, was sold to the carriage organisation quite quickly um, in '59. And uh, once Gordon realised that he might get into a bit of uh, the trouble down the road, he thought, oh, well, I'd better make some money out of the Fabian version. So he managed to get that away to New Zealand before Machucci had a chance to actually catch it. And so at least Gordon made £3,000 out of that sale. But the copy that circulated in Australia for a short time was a, was a cut-up version um, in, in 59 and, and 60. Um, and then just disappeared. Gordon didn't have an interest, but then... We we understand that um, it wasn't so much all of Gordon's... From, from an interview with Lee Robinson, uh, Robinson sort of remarked that it was also because Gordon didn't want to distribute it uh, via normal channels. He didn't want to sell the film here. He wanted to keep all proceeds from the cinema tickets and stuff. So it didn't really get a distribution kind of facility to to go throughout Australia and get promoted. So, um, yeah, Robinson sort of felt that that um, because of that and, and Gordon's lack of interest in not having Fabian in, in the copy that circulated Australia, that it never really got off the ground. And after that, it virtually disappeared. Yeah, it disappears. Um, it it's some we, we don't know so... Um, the researchers Don Hudson and Bob Hayden they, they sort of um, they've, they've tried to piece together the journey and there's this only recently last year they, they sort of discovered that it did show up at the Roval Drive-In in 68 we actually found a person who actually went to that and he'd written it in his diary and he approached Don last year and said that Oh look, I, I did see that it showed up at Roval Drive-in. So we then had a minor report, which was later affirmed that it showed up somewhere um, in I think it was Dandenongs. So it did it did circulate a little bit. We don't sort of know what that gap between 61 or so 1960 and 68 really has inside it. Um, but certainly after 68, it did disappear. And, and then, of course, in the early 70s, um, 
Lee Robinson's copy, um, the the original, I should say, um, he he then just tragically was moving his laboratory, uh, not laboratory, sorry, his uh, film studio, and moving all of the, the films and equipment. The removalist had taken taken the copy or the original to the tip. So it was just a, a terrible set of events to, to lose all side of it. And there were sort of rumours of um, Lee Robinson getting a, a, uh, a bobcat out and going to the local tip and digging for it. He was, it was just, you know, and I, I probably would have as well. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's just terrible uh, to, to lose an original. Before we get to the film's rediscovery, tell me a little bit about yourself, Mark. What's your background? Yeah. Are you a mad collector of vinyl and film? Do we find you out on Saturday mornings flicking through racks of records and going in, in mm. hunt of, you know, 16-millimeter <laughs> rare prints and stuff like that? Um, I wish I could say that. I wish I could say you can come over to my house and I'll have half the wall devoted to the walls devoted to, uh, to vinyl. But that's actually not me, and I think, I think that as much as I feel like an imposter, I think that I was thinking about this that, you know, my background kind of helped the, the whole the whole project of getting this film into the spotlight. I mean, I am a, I, of course, I I do I, I'm a treasure hunter. I'm not specifically after vinyl or. Um, you know, or other forms of, of music or anything like that. I appreciate music a lot. Um, um, obviously, you know, just spent the last 30 years in the inner city Melbourne watching bands and DJing and stuff. So, you know, obviously I'm obviously well keen to to listen to, to many forms of music, but as far as a collector of music per se, I'm not. So basically my background is, um, I have a visual arts degree and a sociology and media degree, and they've helped tremendously in in trying to navigate the cultural relevance, uh, the, the technical aspects of restoring the film. Um, my background in DJing and music production has helped with the the audio side of things, getting that right. So it'd be more romantic for me to say that. I'm the greatest vinyl collector in the world, and this is my crowning glory. But um, I'm a bit of a one-hit wonder. But <laughs> so far, I, uh, you do like to hunt for lost things. For... I'm a tre- I'm a treasure hunter. I'm a suburban um, Indiana Jones. I think, <laughs> as cheesy as that sounds, I do a lot of hard rubbish. So I, I look through a lot of what people throw out, um, and that brings up some remarkable stuff. It's such a great way of finding just these strange items like feature films it's just been remarkable what i've found and what i think the, the, the thing is that at the moment there's a there's a generation that aren't familiar with the internet and in a tragic way they're kind of passing without really knowing the value of their things and you know the baby boomer generation is quite large as we all know and they've got so many valuable items that they don't know what to do with and certainly not being savvy with the internet is not helping them at all and i sort of feel it's it's at this sort of five year five years sort of window where five or ten years maybe maybe even fifteen years where we we 
we really must make a concerted effort to catch whatever's turning up in op shops, in in hard rubbish, in in deceased estates, because there is some remarkable stuff just not being passed on, just being thrown out. And, um, you know, that adds to all of the excitement. And, of course, I'm, a, I'm addicted to treasure in, in all its guises. So, I, um, yeah, I, I, it, it's, it was almost... The, the role was sort of made for me to get this film out, I think. But, you know, if people ask, oh, he was... People think about what kind of guy I'd be. It would probably be like this mad junkie collector is... Yeah, he's finally found the, the Holy Grail. But, yeah, it's not me. That's definitely not me. So, so it's yeah. March 2020. The world's about to go into COVID lockdown. You're in COVID Central, or what's about to be COVID Central, Melbourne. Mm. Tell mm. me about finding the four 35mm film reels of the rock and roll spectacular that mm. by this stage had been lost for over half a century. Yeah, I was doing a hard rubbish round, but often during hard rubbish collections they people make advantage take advantage of those sort of sort of area-wide hard rubbish days and they they have these little sales uh, of the stuff they've found and they know that there'll be collectors all hanging around so <laughs> they're professional guard sailors and stuff like that so yeah i was just doing the rounds and it was, it was a reasonably good day i was actually pretty late getting out and i honestly didn't have any and, you know, you know, there's stories of people thinking, oh, you know, I really feel like it's on today. I'm going to find something great. And I was just in, I was actually not in an area that I thought I would find anything at all, to be honest. And, you know, I just, I sort of just felt as though it sort of chose me in a way. But, you know, coming across it, well, I think most people would have driven past the the film can that it was in because, you know, when I stopped and it was sort of sitting out in the yard, the thing was quite rusty. There was water pooling on the top. Uh, you know, it was almost a little bit scripted in that way. It just looked like an old suitcase that had travelled the world. And, you know, it was almost like... It did remind me a bit of uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, that, that sort of... <laughs> that object that people chase all around the countryside and over years and years it ends up in the most unlikely place. And yeah. that was kind of how it felt, you know. Like, it was very heavy. Yeah. It's a very heavy thing to carry. And I thought, oh, well, there's film in here for sure. But then I did have a... I did open it up and, and this sort of strong kind of... <laughs> smell of vinegar hits you in the face mm. of course um and i didn't know at that stage that that was a pretty bad sign and and probably if i did i would have been quite disenchanted but but then i thought okay so what's what's on this film and i saw a little label there something that said something like rock and roll spectacular and look i'll, I'll just say I, i'm very very um i was very unaware of those those big shows that Lee Gordon had, and and I, I really didn't know, and I didn't know who Lee Gordon was. Yeah. Um, as striking as that that may seem, yeah, it was quite a quite a uh, sort of a, a non-reaction almost to something so significant, and then it just built from there. I mean, I I sort of held it up to the light, and I could see rock and roll singers in the negatives, and yeah. I thought, well. That's going to pay. That's going to pay for my a day off. 
because I knew that, you know, as a collector, you know that if you've got footage of rock and roll bands on 35mm film, well, you know that it's going to be worth something, you know. Um, but no, in purchasing it, it didn't, I didn't purchase it for much. When did you realise that you had something significant? I got home and just, I just did more study and, yeah, I just sort of, you know, sort of just started to tweak a bit. I, a lot of people didn't think it existed. They'd forgotten about it. I mean, thank, thank God um, we had Don Hudson and Bob Hayden working their way through the jungle with no help whatsoever. Well, you know, assisted by a few people, but trying to piece together where this film may be and stuff like that. But, look, people had almost forgotten about it. People had looked previously for 30 years trying to find this film and I had some collectors just call me up and just say, that is just... Uh, they they could not believe it showed up. Just showing up suddenly of its own accord like that was quite a remarkable thing for a lot of people. And so then I started to understand that through the research that was being done. How did you feel being the man responsible for what has been described as one of the most significant discoveries in Australian film and musical history? Um, yeah, look, I get a bit of pride out of it. I guess, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess we all want to be known for something, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> so you've got the film, yeah. you've got the film in your yeah. hot little hands, you've realised what, yeah. what, what you've got. What were the next steps in terms of preserving, digitising and restoring the film, which you're going to, you were going to be doing off your own bat mm. with your own money, and what were your concerns mm. about that process? I actually really struggled. I, I mean, it was a part-time job for, for three or four years. You know, I had to take a gamble. I, I Along the way, I encountered what I felt was obviously ignorance uh, about uh, the importance of the film. And, and that's, look, that's okay. I mean, I, I struggled to understand the significance at the start as well. And for someone just being propositioned with uh, ideas of, you know, you know, would you like to take it on and help me and stuff like that? I, I kind of, I kind of understand that, but um, you know, I think that um, just just in terms of getting it digitised was was a struggle in itself. Trying to find someone who um, put it through a scanner, and of course, COVID was around, and that made it more difficult. And you know, that was really costly uh, uh, just to digitise it and. And then you've got a lot of people saying it's, it's you know, it's too damaged to to attempt and you better let a professional do it. And then a lot of people were actually quite um, upset that I hadn't um, just given it to the NFSA. Yeah. And and I, I guess, you know, my... my So I've probably done 200,000 kilometres looking for things and... I put a lot of work into finding treasure. <laughs> so I, I wasn't in a position to say, oh, okay, I'll just give away the best thing I've found. Um, and I, I just sort of, I, obviously I just wanted, I wanted it for myself. I wanted to keep it. But yeah. I also I thought, well, I, I can certainly distribute the film myself. Um, I can, the most important thing is that people get to see it. And, and, to be honest, it's proven to be the quickest way um, because not only was I faced with a lot of technical um, technical difficulties in, in getting it digitised and and then 
getting it to a, a standard to be shown in cinema, I also had to almost... I, I pretty much did a law degree, I would say, in terms of hours, just to, uh, just to understand how I could actually distribute it. So it, 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 it fell out of copyright... Uh, to the author in in the uh, in 2000, I think it was 2011 or something like that. So look, I had to go through all of these questions, questioning myself, um, and I think that you know, and that's probably relating back to, you know, was I the best person to find this? I think yes. I think that a bit like Lee Gordon, really, you know, just sort of just going with it and just not listening to people, and maybe that brings people undone sometimes, but sometimes it actually works in the favour. And, and I think that's probably one of the other qualities that got me to that point of actually bringing it out into the public. Essentially, the fact is everyone's getting to see it. I think that's the most important thing. You've watched The Rock and Roll Spectacular, I think it's safe to say, more times and more intensely than anyone else on earth, including Lee Gordon back in the day. So yeah. what does it tell us about Australia at that time? I, I quite like that there was a little sort of a sort of sprinkling of... Um, European kids there. There were the first sort of first gen after the war there. I noticed a few Italians and 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 Greeks in the audience, which I'm half Italian, so that kind of kind of resonated a bit with me. So that was really interesting. And of course, all of the stuff that I mentioned earlier about um, about um, people letting go and just having a great time and not caring about what their, their parents thought. And you know, at the start, people walking up to get their tickets. You know, and they were just all kitted up. They were, they looked great. They were a lot of the girls were really pretty and dressed up in beautiful, beautiful um, attire. And obviously spent hours trying to look great. And and a lot of the the boys were looking edgy. And you know, it was just it was so it was so nice to see a live setting. It was something that that could have happened now or, or, or 60, 70 years ago. I just found it quite similar in a lot of ways, to, to what to what we have now. So, yeah, it was just a wonderful thing. So, so the 1959 Rock and Roll Spectacular, I mean, it's a time capsule, but when we think of time capsules, we think musty and dusty. This is exuberant, energetic and ecstatic. What are the highlights for you? Who, who really gets you sort of tapping your toes and nodding your head and smiling each time you see it? Oh, I don't want to fall out with any of the... <laughs> well, I'll say, for, I'll, I'll say I thought Johnny O'Keefe was obviously wild and amazing, but Johnny Devlin, yeah. wow, he gives him a run for his money. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Devlin, he just looked like he was on a mission. There was See, some of the, the performers didn't know about the camera, apparently, and some did. Um, so I think Johnny Devlin was... Perhaps he was he was primed because he knew it was going to be... I'd like to actually affirm whether he knew it or not, but as, uh, I think some of them knew just to sort of... There was, they had to grab this moment and um, they were going to be in a feature film. I do feel as though it was Johnny Devlin who lifted the, 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 the night to a new level. Yeah. That's when you went, hey, this film is... He's rocking. You know, that's a... It's it's this film is actually this is gold, you know, and yeah. then from then on then you then you just had Cole Joy who's just makes you feel great inside. You know, yeah. he's just such a uh, just a um he's just just wins you over in a but he doesn't have to sort of 
jump on stage and jump on pianos and stuff. He does it in a different way. Yeah, he's very so warm, isn't he? He's a he's a warm and and so I I, I honestly can't split them. No, that's cool. You're, I mean, it's your yeah, baby. You, you, they're your like they're kind of your children. You have to love them all equally. <laughs> I do. I I am very. I feel very close to them in a very strange way. I, I don't blame so you having having done so much time uh, restoring the film and watching it. Now you've yeah. shown the film to many of the people who were in it, who are still going and still performing in some cases. How have they reacted to the film and how have they reacted to its rediscovery and their youthful mm. selves reaching yeah. old and new ears and eyes? You know, Cole Joy, um, Tony Brady and Lonnie Lee turned up to the to the premiere in in, in Sydney, uh, in Newtown. And and that was just wonderful. And, and, you know, people hadn't seen Cole in months and, you know, he was, he was quite sick a few months prior and to be out and smiling and talking and for me to meet him was just that was I won't forget that. And um, he was he was happy about the film being out? Yeah, he, he felt it was liquid gold, but you know, that's that that's kind of they're, they're the highlights. They're the things I like to hear. The oh. things that to the fact that I, I, I found this I found this film on the on the grass and bought it for a song and then I've got uh, you know, after all that I went through you, hearing gold uh, that uh, Cole feels like it was a it was a treasure, and that that's that's rewarding. I that's have to great. say. So yeah, look, they they love it, and so to 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 be able to have this thing that just circulates Australia and into the cinemas and you know um, shows shows these kids you know just going wild to their music, and I'm sure it makes them. I'm sure it will put them on the map more on the map. And yeah. where they rightly belong, and and yeah, and give them that bit of bit more confidence that hey, they were they were pretty damn good themselves, you know. I've seen on your social media on the Facebook page for the mm. rock and roll film that you've met some people who are actually featured in the film as audience members as young people. Yeah, um, so I've I. I've quite been, there's a few people that were there. I haven't actually met them in person. There's a um, guy by the name of Wayne Soul whose mother was in the audience and um, her sister and their cousin. And I found that really rewarding as well because it allows me to put a story to the faces. And I do. I did grow strangely close to the audience members as well, particularly those that showed up quite a lot. And so that was a really, that was a, that's a real, that was a really important thing and really rewarding thing for me to, um, so it meant so much to Wayne and I can understand why I'd just be like, I mean, his mother is now, uh, sort of lives on in this, in this film and she was a mad rock and roll fan and mm. she'd got dropped off to, to the to the concert by a, a father who was a cab driver, and she continued on, um, you know, past the teenage years, just loving rock and roll. And and Wayne, of course, took it on. I couldn't have imagined what it'd be like for Wayne to sort of sit back and go, "Oh my God, there's my mother. She's enjoying it. She's talking, seeing it, seeing footage of your mother from 1950s mm. would be just a remarkable experience. If that happened to me, I'd be, yeah, definitely tears in my eyes." Yeah. <laughs> 
So yeah. the 1959 Rock and Roll Spectacular is screening in selected cinemas around Australia. People can find those screenings at your website. If there are any listeners of Forgotten Australia out there who may have been at the show or who had family members or friends who were there, how can they make contact with you? Is it best to go through the website? Yeah, through that there's a message um, message link, um, just a page to, to leave a message. We'd love to hear from people. Um, um, and of course, yeah, it's so rewarding for people to connect with the film and it makes us feel great that, you know, people can place themselves in history and um, get some footage of their loved ones. So, yeah, it's, it, that's really important and please, we, we actually will have a page, I think, that uh, will exhibit uh, stories behind the audience members that were captured. So, yeah, it's, it's actually vital that people can, can let us in. On, on what they know. <laughs> Beautiful. So, Mark, what is the website that people should go to? www.rockandroll1959.com And from there, there's pretty clear sort of links there to, to leave messages or, or learn about the history of the film. Mark, thanks so much for sharing your story on Forgotten Australia. Mm. And thank you for everything you've done yeah. to share this precious film with all of us. Thank you for spreading the word and I hope it, it, it continues on and maybe... It'll end up in the school curriculum one day. Lee Gordon's 1959 Rock and Roll Spectacular screens on the 15th of July at Yarraville Sun Theatre, on the 17th at Aubrey's Regent Cinemas, on the 23rd at Bendigo's Star Cinema, and also on the 23rd at Mawoolumbar's Regent Theatre. On the 30th of July, you'll be able to see it at the Randwick Ritz, and it'll be on at Sydney's Hayden Orpheum and Ballarat's Regent Cinemas on the 6th of August. Perth listeners can check it out on the 27th of August at the Backlot, and it'll be on in Adelaide on the 3rd of September at the Capri. Mark is adding more dates constantly, so be sure to check the website. That address again, rockandroll1959.com. So that's R-O-C-K-N-R-O-L-L. 1959.com I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. As always, thanks for listening, thanks for supporting and keep on rocking. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.